May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Now, of the twelve disciples named in the Gospels, Peter is one of the very few whose personality really comes through. You can get some sense of Thomas, but mostly on account of his doubting. There's a good number of comments made regarding the character of Judas Iscariot, but even those don't give you much sense of his personality. They're glimpses of James and John, but how much do we know of Philip and Bartholomew, much less James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, or Simon the Zealot? Almost nothing, really, other than their names. But Peter, the gospel writers all give us a fair bit about Peter. And for all that he will eventually fail Jesus on the night of the arrest, it's difficult not to like the guy. He's an enthusiastic disciple, to be sure, the one who will leap out of the boat in an attempt to walk on the water. And who, at least in John's version of things, will pull out a sword, strike a slave, trying to protect Jesus on the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus will stop Peter, tell him to sheath the sword, at which point poor Peter will run away into the darkness like a scared rabbit. But I suppose that tells us something about him too, doesn't it? He's a fisherman by trade, and I think you see this reflected in the sort of workaday practicality that surfaces from time to time in these stories. Peter strikes me as a don't just stand there, do something kind of character. Perhaps nowhere more strongly than in the story of the Transfiguration. The incident is placed by Mark more or less midway through his gospel account. For all of the time they've spent with Jesus as their teacher and their mentor up to this point, the disciples seem rather clueless as to what he's really all about. As the musician Nick Cave writes in his little introduction to Mark, even his disciples, who we would hope would absorb some of Christ's brilliance, seem to be in a perpetual fog of misunderstanding, following Christ from scene to scene with little or no comprehension of what is going on. Not that the story of the transfiguration marks their emergence from that fog. It's only in light of the resurrection and with the gift of the Holy Spirit that that fog will finally lift. In fact, it's after Peter, James, and John have gone up the mountain with Jesus and had this strange experience, and after they've heard Jesus speak of his impending death, after both of those events that he'll catch them all arguing among themselves as to who is the greatest, who's the most important disciple. You'd imagine that the sort of experience shared by Peter, James, and John would have at least knocked those kinds of trivial questions out of their heads, but apparently not. It's quite an experience that's recounted by Mark. It tells us that Jesus took just those three disciples and he led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured there. 
The word is metamorphothē, which is the source of our word metamorphosis. It means transformed or changed. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, this is not exactly what you'd call an everyday occurrence. Not only does Jesus seem to be literally overflowing with light, he's standing in the company of two of the greatest figures in the story of God's people, Moses, who'd lived 1,200 years earlier and who'd led the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, where on their behalf he'd received the Torah, the covenant law by which this people would be shaped as God's people. And Elijah, the great prophet who lived in the ninth century before Christ and who was expected to again return to Israel to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. And now these three disciples stand and bear witness as their teacher stands in the presence of these two great figures representing the law and the prophets, more than just standing with them in conversation with them. No, it's not an everyday occurrence, although as N.T. Wright suggests, it's an event in which the deepest significance of everyday reality suddenly and overwhelmingly confronted Peter, James, and John. The deepest significance of everyday reality confronted them. You don't see this every day, Peter, but that light is always present in your teacher, Jesus. You don't see it every day, James and John, but his life is one with Moses and Elijah. His life is in conversation with and a fulfillment of the great tradition of Torah and prophet. And it's at this point that Peter's personality comes through in spades. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Uh, let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Don't you love that? There they are in the midst of a shared mystical experience in the best sense of that word, in which their normal way of seeing the world has been lifted and they can see something of what is really going on. They can finally see something of who it is they've been following all of this time. And the best Peter can come up with is a suggestion to build three shelters. He can't just stand still. He can't just let the experience sweep over him. He can't just be. He's too busy. He's got to get his hands active, use them, and do something. It's how he makes sense of his world. We all know people like that, of course. Mark's editorial comment here is that Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified, which was no doubt true. I wonder, though, if Peter was also expressing something that is a rather common human impulse, Namely, to want to hold and preserve the moment. The three dwellings might help to extend this experience, but maybe even more significantly, the three structures would mark the location. 
Mark it as holy, much as Jacob, after his dream vision of seeing the heavens open and the angels ascending and descending, much as Jacob took a stone, poured oil over it, and marked the place of that divine encounter. It's not a bad instinct to do that, to mark things. We mark graves. We put up headstones or surface markers with a person's name on it and their dates and often some phrase or verse or other words to kind of ground that marker. And people go back to the cemetery. They stand in front of that marker and they read the name and they remember this church building. This church building is filled with markers. I mean, there's these memorial plaques all the way around remembering somebody. All of the stained glass windows are given in memory of somebody. Even the flags. Even these flags are remembrance markers that were hung by those who survived in memory of those, their friends and colleagues who had died in those wars. The building itself is a kind of a marker too. Built specifically for people to gather, to pray, to worship, to share in the bread and wine of Eucharist. It was built, in short, as an expression of the holy. It's for those reasons that most of us really like being in this space for worship, right? Because it was built for that, and it's been used for that for almost 100 years. Yet the transfiguration experience will not be held It's not to be commemorated or marked in that way. No sooner had Peter made his suggestion to start building the structures than a cloud overshadowed them. From the cloud came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And then just as suddenly as it had all begun, it it was over. Suddenly, Mark tells us, When they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. What do you suppose it was that the three of them experienced there on that mountain? The words of N.T. Wright, as the similar experiences of mystics in various ages and cultures would suggest, this is a sign of Jesus being entirely caught up with, bathed in, the love, power, and kingdom of God, so that it transforms his whole being with light in the way that music transforms words that are sung. Those three disciples saw that. They experienced their teacher as being the utterly beloved Son of God, caught up and bathed in that love, and so alive with that light Extraordinary kind of experience. What were they to do with it, though? For a time, nothing. Not mark it, not commemorate it, not build something there. As they were coming down the mountain, Mark tells us, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about what they'd seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Tell no one. Which suggests to me that Jesus knew that until they'd seen the full story right to its bitter and then beautiful end, they wouldn't be able to talk about this experience without messing it up. They'd tell some version of it, surely, and it would get twisted or distorted. 
or become a source of jealousy among those other nine disciples who didn't get to go up the mountain or a source of false pride for the three who did. Don't even talk about it, not yet. For all that you've just seen and experienced, you really don't have a clue, not yet. So what are we to do with it? Well, maybe we let ourselves be informed by the absurdity of the whole I'll build three dwellings for you episode, both to recall us to a sense that sometimes just standing there is more important than doing something, and as a reminder that even our greatest commemorative edifices, the sacred spaces we build with human hands, even those are merely provisional. The space is wonderful. I love being here. But were it to fall down tomorrow, God would be no less able to hear our prayers or to meet us in the breaking of the bread. In fact, sometimes the best thing that can happen to God's people is for their treasured edifices to fall down. But that's a whole other sermon. I think finally the thing we need to do with this story is to hear the words which Peter, James, and John heard. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then day by day, week by week, be about doing just that. Listen to him. In the words of the Gospels, in the act of breaking bread together, and in the words and the faces of those we encounter along the way, who will speak his word to us, sometimes in the most unexpected and surprising of ways. This is, my son, the beloved, in whatever way you can, listen to him. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.